If Satan knows the end game, and Satan does know the end game, why does he continue the fight? And the answer is, he's an optimist. Um, And he denies reality. And he's been so long and so engaged in telling the lie, he does what? He believes that it's true. And what he knows the Bible teaches, he thinks is what? A lie. So he believes he's going to be victorious over God. And in spite of everything the Bible says, or that he thinks he knows about God, God's going to be defeated. But we know different, don't we? We got the book, we read the end, and he'll be a defeated foe, is a defeated foe. Um, is, if Satan is the father of lies, and we know he is because we read it in John 8.44, is there a time when a lie is appropriate in God's eyes? Uh, is there any time when sin is appropriate in the eyes of a thrice holy God? Answer, never. Answer, never. The means never justifies the end in the eyes of a God who's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. God's way will always be better than our way when our way differs from the truth of God's word, even, even if it costs us, even if it costs us our lives. And uh, there are centuries and centuries and centuries and uh, thousands and ten thousands upon martyrs who today in heaven would testify to that truth. Could a so-called Christian, wow, this is maybe on Halloween, could a so-called Christian be the devil in disguise? He'd have a really good Halloween outfit if he was. Um, I suppose in a hypothetical world, they could be, but Satan, while a created being, is an angelic being as opposed to a, a human being. Um, the Bible never deals with this, so I'm just going to give you my best guess. I don't think he would stoop so low as that. Um, and if he did, he could only do it in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. So if he could, it would be extraordinarily localized. Um, I don't see anybody sitting around that I would think would qualify for that. So I think you're safe, whoever wondered about that. Um, Please explain the apparent connection. Well, it's not an apparent connection. It's a direct, explicit connection between uh, unforgiveness and how Satan takes advantage of believers in these verses, talking about uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11 that we started with. I've written these things to you in order that no advantage be taken of you by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. And the answer to that doesn't so much lie in that passage as it does in other passages, Um, Once in Ephesians and once in Colossians, Paul instructs the church that we as believers are to forgive as we have been forgiven. So answer a question with another question. Uh, How completely have true believers been forgiven of their sin uh, in redemption uh, through Christ's death? Let's make it multiple guess to make it easy, right? Uh, A, 80%. B, 
90%, C, 100%, and I'll give you a tip I learned when I taught uh, in the Navy, and that is, when in doubt, choose Charlie. <laughs> so is it Alpha, 80, Bravo, 90, or Charlie, 100? <laughs> what do you think? Charlie. Yeah, it's Charlie. It's 100. So why is it sin if we as a believer refuse to extend to someone else who may be deserving when it was extended to us at 100% when we weren't deserving? The answer is it's sin. So that's the point that Paul was making to the Corinthian church, who generally found sin more attractive than righteous behavior and were refusing to forgive a sinning brother of whatever, it doesn't say what the sin is there, but the fact that he didn't, and Paul was being an example to them, forgiving them for uh, transgressions much larger than the one that they weren't willing to forgive. So that's that. Can Satan read our minds or know our thoughts? That's probably, uh, independent of demons, the number one most asked question anywhere I go about Satan. Can he read our minds? My answer is absolutely not. He's not omniscient. Uh, He has no attributes or qualities of deity. He's a created being. He's an angelic being, uh, albeit a very powerful angelic being. Uh, So, no, he cannot read our mind, and no, he cannot put thoughts in our mind, which raises a pretty significant question and might contradict everything I said this morning. And that is if he can't read our minds and know what we're thinking, he doesn't know what we're thinking right or wrong, and he can't put any thoughts in there, which means he can't uh, take a bad thought and put it in and take out a right thought, how in the world can the mind be the battlefield? Uh, That's an easy question to answer, but it's not an obvious answer. Satan, in both an efficient and effective way, in Genesis chapter 3, Uh, and with the deceit of Eve and her disobedience and then Adam's disobedience, uh, led, as God promised, to uh, the fall of man, to the curse upon the earth, and to the separation uh, immediately from God, spiritually speaking, then physically from God in physical death, And ultimately, for those who don't put their faith in the redemption provision of God, would be eternal separation. Adam and Eve propagated, physically, a human race that was conceived and born in sin. And the human race has arrived in that condition in every country, every gender, every ethnic group, every financial strata, without exception, since the beginning uh, of Adam and Eve's relationship uh, as a husband and a wife when told to uh, uh, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over that. Um, And consequently, uh, the work of Satan is not so much immediate in the sense that he's sitting at one of your tables sized you up and have mystically put some kind of bad thought in your mind and you're going to be an agent of Satan. But rather what would be called mediately, and that is he started a process that repeated itself. And his one act 
of deceiving Eve, which led to both her and Adam's disobedience, then has impacted or infected, spiritually speaking, the entire human race. So that you're your own worst enemy. Pogo got it right. We has met the enemy and they is us. Uh, Satan enlisted the human race through Adam and Eve as spiritual traitors to the cause of God, apart from God graciously and mercifully and lovingly redeeming people out of a fallen world to be kingdom citizens who would ultimately live with him in eternity and give him the proper worship uh, and the proper obedience uh, in, in the pure and pristine environment that was uh, Eden's before Satan deceived Eve. She disobeyed, Adam disobeyed, and uh, uh, the curse on them and Satan and, and the earth came into, uh, into being. So he really doesn't have to work as hard, given the fact that he's not omnipresent, uh, as he might have to because of what happened in the garden. Um, so no, he cannot read your mind, uh, and he cannot put uh, thoughts in your head. Um, he created you with a capacity, uh, or, or uh, let me back up and say it a different way for the tape. He created a set of circumstances in the lives of Adam and Eve to uh, pollute the human race, to have the capacity to have all the evil, bad, sinful thoughts that they ever would need uh, along the way. Why was there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and what was the purpose? Um, This could be about a half an hour. Um, One thing to understand in the study of Scripture, one of the things to start with, is that God's mind is infinite. And I don't think any of us, would you have any problem with that? Uh, If you would, uh, and, and just need some encouragement, go to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, and it says that God's thoughts are as far and above and expansive ires as the difference between what's happening on the planet and what's happening in the galaxy. Um, point being, we're not remotely close to God's thought level or, or process. And, and that's important to grasp. Uh, the better educated you are, the more PhDs you've got, uh, the harder it's going to be to understand that. Uh, and I'm not diminishing at all uh, making the best effort you can to use your mind in the most sane way possible. I, I'm just saying, a guy with 10 PhDs isn't remotely close with his finite mind and his multiple degrees when compared to an infinite God. Uh, now, back to the question. That's a diversionary tactic. Remember I told you that's what Satan does to... Uh, why was there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? My answer, I haven't got a clue. And the reason I haven't got a clue is the Bible doesn't address it. It just says there was one. So, hey, I just accepted there was one. And God used it to test or put Adam and Eve in what we might call a a short period of uh, probation or testing because there was a no-no, there was a negative... uh, um, Connected with it. That's the second question. What was the purpose? And um, I can tell you what the result was. 
and can only assume that God had intended a uh, positive purpose for it. And, and now I'm going to raise another question that no one can answer till we get to heaven. Um, much as Peter was sifted by Satan to accuse him before God of all the stuff that was in the sieve, and yet God used it to uh, purify him and strengthen him so he could minister to the to the disciples. Um, from God's perspective, I believe there would have been every uh, expectation that Adam and Eve would pass the test and life would have gone on. From Satan's perspective, um, it was to deceive them and have them uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and totally upset temporarily God's kingdom plans. Um, and, and nobody can say more than that because the Bible doesn't tell us any more than that. And you, at times, have got to live with the tension of if God is uh, totally sovereign, and the Bible says he is, if he's omniscient and knows all things, and the Bible says he is, and if he is holy and righteous and incapable of anything that's unholy and unrighteous, and if he tempts no one, then why did he do that tree, put it there, tell them not to eat from it, uh, let them get deceived, not to mention why did he create angels with the capacity to uh, either be holy angels or evil angels. And you could go on ad infinitum with uh, unanswerable questions that's enough to sink a battleship and give uh, unbelievers uh, a million reasons not to put their faith in Christ. There's an element of faith in all of this, and it goes back to what we believe about the Word of God. What we know, what we put our faith in, uh, what we have as our hope, which we can't see all of, uh, is by faith in the Word of God. And if our faith is not found in there, there is no other place to find it in terms of being informed about what God wanted us to know. Or put another way, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it came from God. It was uh, outspired would be a better way to translate that instead of inspired. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Whatever God wanted us to know from a, a spiritual perspective, to understand um, him, uh, Christ, the Holy Spirit, sin, uh, man, future things, the church, etc., God put in this book and expected us to take all the unanswerable questions by faith, not that we don't think through them real carefully. And um, the most of those questions are at the very beginning of the Scripture because everything's starting. Um, and in some cases, in the progress of Revelation, God gives us little nuggets. For instance, 2 Corinthians 11, if we wondered what was going on in 3 and didn't want to take 3 at face value, we know from 2 Corinthians uh, 11 what Satan, who the serpent was and what the serpent was doing and with whom he was doing it and to what end he was doing it because it says explicitly that. And so that sort of takes the, the mystery out of that. But God doesn't always do that with all the questions that we can come up with. Um, see, even though Satan's not omniscient, and he's not, does he know that God intends to destroy him and cast him into the lake of 
fire. Uh, I think he knows that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, we would have every reason to believe, if, if for no other passage of Scripture other than the temptations of Christ, where he's using Scripture, misusing Scripture, to tempt him, that he knows what the Bible teaches. And one of two things is true. Either he totally disbelieves what God has written, or disbelieves that God is capable of pulling off what God intends to pull off, one or the other, or some combination uh, of that. Um, uh, if, if you wanted to give Satan high marks in something that seemingly is positive, it's in optimism and perseverance and persistence, because he doesn't quit till God grabs him by the hand and maybe the big toe. I just picture what that looks like and tosses him into the lake of fire where he joins the false prophet and the Antichrist and all of those who were judged by their own works in Revelation 20 out of uh, the great white throne judgment. Um, is this a coincidence? Well, that's what Calvinists would say, right? It's our lucky day. What a coincidence. And so when we go to... Chinese restaurant, we get Calvin cookies. Is our little, uh, you ever get a fortune cookie at a, <laughs> which has about 0% chance of being remotely true? Is this a coincidence? Uh, uh, what you said of uh, 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and only four have no sin. Um, the first two and the last two. No, it's not a coincidence, it's by divine design. God, God is the author of this book. Uh, he used men as his, uh, uh, Emanuensis to uh, record it, but uh, all of this is is authored by one author, one divine author. That's why we can know that it's infallible and inerrant, and it comes in 66 units. We would might maybe call them chapters. We call them books of the Bible, uh, written by uh, a multitude of uh, different authors over a period of about 1,600 years. Um, so there's nothing in here that's by coincidence. Uh, the design of it, the content of it, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, I'm answering a lot of questions. I probably need to go teach, huh? Um, I'll, I'll stop with this one, and then I'll pick up with some of the more. What is your wisdom concerning how we as believers should keep perspective on the great history of our country in light of the fact that many of our founders um, were practicing masons uh, which is an organization, uh, let's see, basically saying Masonic uh, uh, endeavors are indulging satanic ritual, worshiping falsely, etc., which is all true. Um, I, I think the intent of the question is why has America uh, been so blessed when some of its founders, particularly, were not necessarily focused on the truth of what God says about himself in heaven. And um, uh, there's a lot of ways you could answer that question. Uh, as a matter of fact, you could write a whole book and still not answer the question, but say a whole lot. Um, th there's nothing that God does through men um, that have anything to do with the men. It's only that God chose an instrument to accomplish his own will. Um, I mean, he used donkeys, right? I, I, I'm not sure we want to exalt 
donkeys to an exalted status or whatever because he did it. Um, he used very, very sinful men to accomplish his own will. And two of the better known would be uh, David, who was an adulterer, um, and Solomon, who squandered wealth and wisdom to satisfy his own lust, and then ultimately wrote about it uh, in the last days of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, humanly speaking, God, apart from Christ, God using the Son of God to um, purchase the redemption of true believers, God has never used the human instrument that was uh, righteous in and of himself or herself, uh, but he has used imperfect instruments to accomplish his will on earth. So there is no reason for us uh, as Americans, as wonderful as our country is, I don't think there's been a more wonderful country in human history. I don't think there's been a a country that's been more uh, benevolent and loving and merciful, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum than America, but this is not a perfect nation. It never has been, and it never will be. And as a matter of fact, I'm often asked, where is the United States in the Bible? And people don't like my answer. And it's not because it's really long and complicated. It's because it's short and simple. Nowhere. There is nowhere that the United States of America is found in the Bible, especially towards the end. And that raises the next question, and that is, why? And you've got, to, you've got to use a little sanctified imagination, which means God doesn't tell us why, but you can sort of guess. And that is, my guess would be that the United States, at some time in the future, without knowing how far that is, it could, it could be uh, uh, in the next year, and some of you probably would say, yeah, I believe that. Uh, it could be in the next decade, it could be in the next century, it could be in the next millennium, um, but it's so marginalized in its importance in world history that it plays no part in the end times and therefore uh, would not be included uh, in the nations of the East, which seem to march towards Jerusalem, or the nations of uh, Europe, which seem to be fairly prominent uh, uh, there. By the way, somebody else said I needed to answer this question or bring this up, or I said I was a lousy book salesman, and I am. Uh, So somebody asked me to make this announcement, and you'll forgive me for doing it. Um, In just a couple of weeks, uh, Moody Press, Moody Publishers will be publishing a book entitled uh, Christ's Prophetic Plans that John MacArthur and I have uh, authored, uh, been the general editors of, included several of our faculty at the Master's Seminary, and uh, for those of you that uh, are futurists in your eschatology, uh, you're going to really enjoy it. I think love it. I think it's going to be helpful to help you walk through the scriptures. And maybe you're one of those kind of people, but you're not real sure why, but that's what you've always been taught or the statement of faith that your church says that. For those of you that are misguided uh, amillennialist, postmillennialist, historic premillennialist who are going to change your mind when you get to heaven. You might as well change it while you're here on earth and have some fellowship with the people that got it right to start with. And uh, (laughs) I'll get emails on that one. And you can write John and me. Uh, But for better or worse, do do you read stuff you don't agree with? Sometimes that's not a good idea, but sometimes it is a good idea 
to make sure you really know why you believe what you do from the Word of God. And uh, so I, I think this book would be helpful either way. I mean, maybe I'll reread it and come to the conclusion we were just totally wrong. Uh, I don't know what the publisher would do if that happened. <laughs> but uh, anyways, it, it, it'll be there, and now I've hopefully made that person happy that said I ought to do that, um, since I think i got to go to bed with her tonight. <laughs> so B, I did it. <laughs> okay, enough Q&A. I, it maybe woke you up after lunch or, or whatever. Um, where, where we need to go in... Uh, Wow. That meathead story took a long time. Um, and Van's announcements took a long time. Either that or that clock is moving faster than it ought to, one or the other. Uh, I do want to look at countermeasures. I mean, we, we've talked about how awful and sinister and universal the effect of Satan is, um, probably till you're sick of it, um, and all the stuff we talked about this morning. Does that leave us defenseless, helpless, vulnerable uh, pawns uh, in the in the hand of Satan, uh, puppets with uh, satanic strings attached to do? And the answer is absolutely no, not under any circumstance whatsoever. As a true believer in Jesus Christ, understanding there are people who think they are believers for a variety of reasons, who really aren't. And those people are vulnerable to the things of Satan because they cannot see the truth of God's word. Uh, They're still dead in their sins and trespasses, just as we were at one time, and uh, need to let the power of the gospel redeem them, regenerate them, and become uh, citizens of, of the kingdom of God. And I want to look at some of those, and, and you've got those in your notes. And I'm more and more thinking I ought not to do the demon thing, because I'd like to do another thing, but Van said that the demon thing was really important for me to do. So uh, we'll, we'll see. This is the adventure of a Saturday. Um, somebody told me I could speak till 6 o'clock tonight, but they didn't look like Van, so I wasn't sure they had the pastoral authority uh, although I really like what they were telling me <laughs> in the process. So we'll, we'll see how we do. I, I do want to start this session with something I missed in a previous session and I, I think is important. And again, I'm trying to, trying to give you a, a, a feel for the breadth of the Bible. You know the old saying that, that you can't see the forest for the trees? And you're so busy identifying the evergreen trees and the blue spruce trees and the palm trees, I like palm trees. Uh, you've got none of them back here. Um, and deciduous trees and all the other names of trees I forgot from biology in the 10th grade, uh, that, you, that you miss the forest, the, the big picture. And I, that's what I tried to do this morning with my three-part uh, before sin, during sin, and after sin, which is a, a very legitimate overview of the entire Bible, all by design, 1,189 chapters. One of the other themes, and I believe is the unifying theme or the core theme of all of the Bible uh, that I think would help us sort of see the forest in spite of the trees, so to speak, is to, and, and it related to Satan, 
is to understand several titles that are given to Satan in the Word of God that are a little confusing when we first read them because I think we're not expecting to see them. And maybe the way to engage in that, and we've already engaged in part of that, here's the quiz. Ready for this? Remember the tip, when in doubt, choose Charlie, right? Uh, in what passage in 2 Corinthians was Satan called the God of this world? A, 2 Corinthians 2.11. B, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Or, Charlie, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> Which is the old Groucho Marx, for those of you who have the same color hair that I have. Uh, it is Charlie, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called the God of this world. And, and the word that's used there is theos. That's the word that uh, is used uh, consistently through the New Testament to refer to God. And the question becomes, how can Satan be called God if he's not God, in the sense that he is uh, deity? And in what sense is it true because we know everything the Bible says is true. And here's the answer. Uh, the word theos can be used in a secular, non-biblical sense of deity, and it, it just means the supreme or superior one in a given context. Does that make sense? And uh, Jesus... Um, fostered that idea in the Gospel of John on uh, three occasions. In John chapter 12, and verse 31, uh, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the, the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And it's, it's there another word, but it is the word that uh, would be used for king or for ruler. He says the same thing in the chapter 14, verse 30, in the upper room uh, discourse. Uh, I will speak, not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And then in 16, they're still in the upper room, 1611, Jesus says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. All of those talking about Satan. In Ephesians 2 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Remember that term? It's the same word translated ruler, archon. Um, there's another title used of him in 1 John 5.19. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. So he's known as, as the superior one, as uh, a ruler, and as one who's uh, thoroughly uh, evil. In Matthew 12.24, the only other place that Archon is used, he's called the ruler of the demons. So how, how can that be? And I think the best explanation for this is to understand the concept of the kingdom of God and understand that Scripture teaches that God has been, is, and will always be king. He was king before he ever created the world because he was deity. And he created a world and a kingdom, a realm over which to rule, uh, a citizenry uh, with which he wished to have fellowship and to be their God and to have them worship 
him. And Satan came along in Genesis chapter 3 and solicited Adam and Eve to come to his side and to fall away from God's side. And once Adam and Eve were deceived and disobeyed, they gave birth to a world population of what could have been kingdom citizens in God's righteous kingdom, but now were disqualified by sin. In other words, nobody can be in God's kingdom as a legitimate kingdom citizen for eternity that are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so all of a sudden you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now you've got Adam and Eve who are disqualified and they're going to give birth to a whole race of people throughout history who are disqualified. With me so far? So the question is, if God's kingdom purposes look forward, and if there was to be an eternal kingdom in eternity future, as the scripture clearly teaches, how could that happen? How, how do you accomplish that? And the answer is through redemption. And what God has been doing from Genesis 3 through Genesis, or through Revelation 20, is requalifying uh, a people to be his kingdom citizens out of a population that is, by human nature, disqualified to be kingdom citizens. And that's why the theme of redemption is so focused on in the Word of God. And admittedly, there have been various epochs in history which God has been doing that through. But it's always been salvation by faith, through grace in Christ alone, and the Old Testament looking forward to the cross and the New looking back to the cross. Uh, there's never been another Savior. There's never been another atonement that had redemptive value other than the one uh, that we would read about uh, in the Gospels uh, historically in time uh, and in space. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, while God has universally ruled over Everything, whatever everything encompasses. Um, while that is true, it's called God's universal kingdom. On earth, the, the worldview or the world system has been authored or dictated by Satan in his deception of Eve, disobedience of Adam and Eve, and the propagation of a sinful human being. There is nothing anywhere apart today from the church of Jesus Christ that has any connection with God's righteousness, God's holiness, and God's future kingdom plans. So what is God doing today? He, he is requalifying, or put another way, and I, I do this in another book. When Adam and Eve were created, they were generated. When they fell... They were degenerated. When they were redeemed, they were regenerated, which is to use a good New Testament term. They were qualified, disqualified, and then requalified. And everyone who's put their faith in Christ or God's redemptive provision, only redemptive provision, have been requalified to be kingdom citizens in the future. In the meantime, Satan is called by Christ, uh, by Paul, 
the, the God of this world or the ruler of this world doesn't mean he's equal to or superior to the God of heaven, but it does mean in this world system, uh, he is the one who was the originator of it and the, the uh, perpetuator of it uh, as, you, as you would. And then, so people ask the question then, how do you explain what you believe eschatologically going forward? And I, I think it would be understood in this manner, uh, in a kingdom of God motif. And you'll have to get the book Christ's Prophetic Plans to see all the details that work uh, its way out through that. But for most of us, and, and particularly the people who go here at the Fellowship Bible Church, and most Baptist churches are looking next forward to the rapture of the church, literally the snatching out of all true believers at uh, the shout of the angel and the sound of the trumpet, um, right behind uh, those who have been resurrected out of the grave, who are in Christ, to be with Christ. Uh, and First Thessalonians 4 says to be with Christ forever, um, and all of those, those who have died in Christ, those who are raptured in Christ, then go back to the heavenlies for seven years. And then fast forward to Revelation 19, and they leave heaven with Christ to come and reclaim or conquer the earth, usurping Satan's authority. Because in Revelation chapter 20, he's, what happens to Satan in Revelation 20 at the very beginning in the first nine verses? He's bound. He is absolutely imprisoned. He has uh, no ability to exercise any authority whatsoever. And Christ rules and reigns on earth from Jerusalem with a rod of iron and fulfills every promise that God had made to the nation of Israel. And I won't go into all of, or we'd be here till next Sunday uh, with that. And fulfills with his 1,000-year millennial reign that aspect of the kingdom of God. And unexpectedly, and quite surprisingly, if you've never read through it, you come to uh, the end of Revelation chapter 20, and Satan's released from being bound, and finds a host of people born into that millennium as unbelievers because they've been propagated by a human race and who side with Satan and make one last final assault. And it says, fire comes down from heaven. They're destroyed. The great white throne judgment occurs, and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the kingdom as he envisioned and experienced in Genesis 1 and 2 that's been, uh, what would be a good word, that uh, has been waiting to be fulfilled in every detail is found in uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Um, Satan is dethroned. Uh, Whatever influence he had on the world is taken absolutely away. God has authority over hell, not Satan. You can write that down for a question for Mike Stollard when he comes next year. That'll give you a head start on your questions. Um, he, he's, uh, 
He's just, he has nothing. He's nobody. And God is everything. All of that in the kingdom of God motif, which would follow what we talked about with redemption being from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, and which would answer the question, and somebody did ask it, and that is how can Satan be called the God of this world and the ruler over the world system and in 1 John 5.19, the little statement that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, how can all that be true? That's how it can be true. Uh, any, any power he has, any authority that he has, is by permission of whom? God. By God. And a uh, classic example of that would be in what text? Would be in the book of Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, Satan made some pretty serious accusations against Job. And God said, uh, you can do certain things to Job to prove or disprove your thesis, but there are certain things you can't do. And the one thing he couldn't do was kill him. He could take all of his material possessions away, because that was one of the accusations, that he, he only worships you because he's rich. He's, a, he's Put in today's vernacular, he's one of the 1%. That's ludicrous. I mean, there was class warfare from the start, and Satan was the author of it. Just put that as that's not a political statement. That's a spiritual statement, but it does have uh, contemporary implications. Uh, (laughs) Sorry for that. Um, And then secondly, um, that didn't work. And and Satan says the Lord gives and the Lord uh, takes away. uh, Yeah, blessed be the name of the Lord. and then he calls his wife a fool. And he got away with it, too. Because she said, what? Curse God and die. She didn't get it. He did. And so um, they turned the heat up a little more. But the point is that Satan couldn't do any more than God allowed him to do. Satan always operates under the ultimate authority of God. That is, he can't do anything that God wouldn't allow him to do. Yeah, there you go. There's, there's, are you a horse person or drive a buggy? Or He, he said God holds the reins, and, and that's exactly. God, God is in charge, however, uh, however you want to describe all of that. Well, maybe that's confusing. That's the whole Bible that uh, could be written in... Uh, volumes on the the kingdom of God. But I think if you'll think through those little chunks, uh, that'll start with the kingdom, it'll end with the kingdom, and you'll understand the kingdom in heaven, Satan's domain on earth, and where Israel fits in, where the church fits in, where the rapture fits in, where the tribulation fits in, where the millennium fits in. And Boy, that's two seminars in one. Van, you got a twofer today. Both eschatology and uh, uh, Satan. So, Let's go to our notes. (laughs) Page 9. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Remember this morning we looked at Luke 22 and I gave you that uh, seemingly arcane and unimportant lesson on the four steps of harvesting grain in ancient Israel. And uh, you harvest it with a sickle and then you threshed it with animals. What was the third one? Then you winnowed it. Good for you. And then you sifted it. And you can remember that in that passage, uh, Jesus gave Satan 
permission, to go back to the sovereignty, gave permission to sift him. But he says, after all that's over, you won't fail, you'll falter. But when you return, strengthen your brother. Remember that? And so I asked myself for that text, because it doesn't tell us a whole lot more there. What did Peter learn from that experience? And how would we know? And the answer I came up with, and I think, I think you'll agree with it, even my amillennial friends will agree with it, I think, because it has nothing to do with uh, eschatology, would be to look at the uh, letters written by Peter. Is there any clue or any hint that he ever did any uh, battle uh, uh, with Satan? And there is in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I, I think there's some tremendous uh, instruction from Peter that would find its genesis back in Luke chapter 22. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, primarily talking to leaders in the church, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you uh, at the proper time. And I don't think that means he's going to promote you from uh, being a low man on totem pole on the elder board to... Uh, the ark elder in your church. I think it's humble yourself under the mighty hand of God while you're on earth that God may exalt you uh, to heaven in his presence. I think that's the sense there. Casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you and be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, and there's the two concepts of Satan and and uh, diabolos, or devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren uh, who are in the world. To him be dominion forever and ever. And I think it reflects back to Peter's experience as a, a, an apostle, a disciple, before Christ's death, and in a sense is looking ahead, although I don't think uh, Peter fully understood it. Christ gave a hint in John 21 um, when he was forgiving Peter uh, of, of what it was that Peter had learned in Luke 22 and what looked ahead. The thing that makes this so significant is that Peter died a martyr, and he willingly died a martyr. And church tradition says that he felt that he was so unworthy of anything about Christ because of his denials, uh, that he wasn't even worthy of being uh, crucified right side up, but was crucified upside down on a cross, which would have been even more terrifying uh, than it was before. Chapter 5 is not written by a theoretician, not written by a theologian uh, who only had been in an ivory tower, but was written by Peter, who literally had done hand-to-hand combat on multiple occasions with Satan. And it's really worth, I think, paying attention to. And in your notes, it's Roman numeral one. What did Peter learn from Satan's sifting? And I think there's at least seven lessons, and they'll go really quick because I'm going to tell you what word to put in the blank. Verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So number one, be humble be humble. Peter tended to want to do some self-exaltation in his early years, and in his latter years, he tells the leaders of the church, humble yourself under 
the mighty hand of God. Don't make outrageous statements like, uh, I'll never forsake you, I'll uh, go to prison, or I'll die on your behalf. Everybody else might forsake you, but I'll never do it. Uh, guy says that, and he's candidate number one to be Peter uh, along the way. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In verse 7, he says, uh, cast all your anxiety uh, upon him, which is uh, uh, just a really good thing to do, whether we understand why we do that or whether we don't understand why we do that. But it is a, uh, a most noble reason that we would cast uh, all our anxiety upon him because, as Paul would write in Romans 8, if God be for us, what's Paul's logic? Who can be against us? So if we're anxious about anything, who's the one person that we can cast all our anxieties on and bring before him in prayer? Uh, and it is God because he loves us, he cares for us, he gave his son for us, and one day is going to uh, bring us to heaven, and we're going to be with him for all of eternity. So be humble, don't be anxious, but cast all your anxiety uh, upon him, Verse 8, be on the alert. Be of sober spirit. Uh, don't be like they are on Christian TV, would be another way to put that. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't deny uh, the reality of or the uh, fearsomeness of Satan. Doesn't deny that at all. But he tells us how to deal with it. He's dealt with it. He's recovered from it. Uh, he's survived through it. Uh, he's fought on for 30-some years from the time that we read in the Gospels till the time that we read here about the mid-60s. Verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. Don't give in to his strategies or his tactics, because you know the mind game that he wants to play with you. He wants you to think a lie is the truth, and he wants you to reject the truth as a lie. Peter understood that, and again, tomorrow morning, we'll look at that in depth in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, in some senses, I think, is a far more, at the human level, embarrassing moment for Peter than when Peter denied Christ three times. It's just a very, very interesting passage in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. At the last half of verse 9 here, uh, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren uh, who are uh, in the world, be willing to suffer for Christ. That's a foreign thought for most Americans, be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about uh, giving an extra $5 in the missionary offering so I'm going to miss my Starbucks on Monday morning. It, it's not that kind of a or level of suffering. It's uh, in Peter's world, in Peter's experience, it's the kind of suffering that uh, could cost you your life. That, that's what he's talking about here. If Christ was willing to die for us, how much more should we be willing to die for the cause of Christ? Should that, and, and that's the argument of First Peter, 
Should that, in chapter 3, should that be the will of God for us? Verse 10, and after you've suffered for a little, his, his point is, no matter how long you suffer in this life, it, it's just, uh, I, I think in French it's un peu compared to eternity. It's just for a wee little bit of time. It's really not going to be much. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that is no matter how much you lose, how much you suffer, or whatever, God's still going to bring you to the end that he promised from the beginning. And that is to perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you for all uh, eternity. And then verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Uh, you, You could fill in there, be a spiritual optimist, be full of hope, um, because that is the hope of glory. That's what Titus was talking about, that little phrase, the hope of glory. That regardless of the conditions of our life on earth, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're uh, healthy or whether we're sick, whether we're well-educated or not so well-educated, our life is easy or our life is hard, in Christ the end is certain, uh, and the end will be to live in perfection without sin uh, in the presence of a holy God forever and ever and ever to worship him in spirit and truth and sing praises with the holy angels. And, and what a glorious thought that is. Whether you're on your deathbed or whether you're uh, an Olympic champion on the pedestal getting one of the little gold uh, medallions put around your neck from seemingly the world's very best to maybe the most uh, weak and poverty-stricken person on the planet. Uh, Peter knew of what he talked. Uh, This is not just theoretical for Peter. Um, He he really got uh, banged around by Satan um, big time. Um, And and then had to live in an era where his exploits were written for everybody to read. It's one thing to blow it spiritually and only you and God know it. It's another thing to put it in a book that everybody in your lifetime is going to read about it, and then everybody who lives after you, and then when they get to heaven, they're going to ask you all these questions. Peter, how could you have done that? How could you have been so stupid and say this? Or Peter, I don't think that's going to happen. I I, I think we're going to go to spiritual charm school uh, in route, and we're not going to ask those kind of questions when we get there um, and embarrass Peter. Because the question is, we ought to be asking ourselves, how could we do that? Or how could we say that when we could have learned from Peter and done a whole lot better than we probably have done? There are Christian countermeasures, and they begin with quality like these. But I, I do want to show you, because it's, it's so encouraging and so positive that God didn't leave us as defenseless victims in the world system of Satan, over which he's the ruler and one who is superior without being deity. God didn't leave us just to be pummeled and beat up and kicked around and uh, uh, feel like, look like uh, a defeated foe. So let's take a look at uh, some of these passages. Matter of fact, we'll try and look at uh, the vast majority of them to uh, encourage us, starting with John chapter 12 and verse 11. 
or 31 rather, I'm sorry. Great pair of glasses I've got that reads 31 is 11. And some of these we've looked at, so it, it, it'll go quick. Now, judgment is upon this world, said Jesus, and the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And his point is, life is not going to go on in a uniformitarian way forever. Uh, temporarily will he be the God of this world, but one day it's going to end. Christ will be the millennial king, and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will rule over uh, eternity Future, And it's the very same idea that's taught in Revelation 12, 11. In 1 John, chapter 2, John, 1 John has some amazing things to say about spiritual warfare, by the way, in a book that might not be known primarily for that. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The, the word, for over, word for overcome in Greek is, we might translate it uh, victor. And uh, how many of you have a pair of tennis shoes uh, made by Nike? Which you're wondering, what in the world has that got to do with the New Testament, what we're talking about? Well, that comes from the Greek word that means victor. Uh, the victory they want you to think, if you buy their tennis shoes, you're going to be the victor in whatever game you play in. But uh, the point is that we who are in Christ promises him that we will have victory over the evil one, the one who personifies uh, uh, evilness. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 makes the same promise in a little different way. For whoever is born of God, and that doesn't mean physically but spiritually, overcomes the world or the world system or the world system over which Satan the evil one rules, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And bound up in that definition is that uh, Jesus himself is God in human flesh who in time and space uh, died on the cross and received the wrath that you and I deserved from the Father righteously on our behalf that we might live forever unto him. And then in verse 18, as it concludes, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, you've got to stop there and call time out. That doesn't mean that anyone who's put their faith in Christ lives sinlessly or in sinless perfection, but it means perpetually, continually, purposefully continues to sin after putting their faith in Christ like they did before they put their faith in Christ. Or put another way, salvation makes a difference in your life. Uh, Paul put it this way, you're a new person in Christ. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. It uh, doesn't mean that uh, you don't no longer have a capacity for sin. You do, but your propensity to sin will be less and less as you mature and grow Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, go back to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17, and Jesus is still in the upper room discourse. He's in his uh, high priestly prayer. And he talks about, at that particular uh, point uh, in time, 
Verse 17, and then we'll go to 15 and on. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart, not in the lie, but in the truth. Thy word is truth. So you put that together, sanctify them or set them apart for the truth of the word of God, not the word of any other system or any other person. And therefore, he said in verse 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one or keep them from the evil one overwhelming them would be the idea that he's talking about there. And then in verse 20, and this is really important because if, if you read verse 15 carefully, he's talking about the disciples and the apostles. And you're saying, well, why didn't he pray for me? Well, the answer is he did, but it's in verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, that is those that were in the upper room with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word and would be the generation after generation after generation, the, the spiritual genealogy of Christians from the time the disciples went out from uh, Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world to proclaim the wonderful message, the glorious message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So Christ is praying for us 2,000 years ago right here in John 17 and verse 20. What, what more could a guy want, no matter what your circumstances in life are? Um, Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, and we kind of know that passage, the spiritual armor of God. And uh, one of the best treatments I know of that, I, I was not my purpose to cover that in my little book, Unmasking Satan, but John MacArthur, in his book, uh, I think it's entitled Prepare to Meet the Enemy, I believe that's the name of it, goes through uh, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 in detail. And it's really an excellent treatment so that uh, you could see with the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, uh, the shield of uh, faith, your feet uh, shod with the gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, and uh, having your loins girded with truth. What all that means in enabling us to, to stand firm and uh, fight the battle and not be a victim of uh, Satan's exploits on earth. First John 4.4, 4, and this little verse always has a wonderful memory for me. It was a little embarrassing uh, along the way, but it sure helped me. Remember, uh, ye are from God, little children, and greater is he that's in you that's in the world. We, we had been saved about six weeks. This is in 1970, and a couple weeks before that, they had asked for volunteers to help on a, a, a Memorial Day uh, trip to uh, the Colorado River with high schoolers. And I, I, I sort of elbowed B, and I said, hey, if we're going to be in this outfit, we better get involved. Just sounds like typical Christian terminology, right? <laughs> More like a naval officer who just got saved. And uh, so we did. And uh, th this outfit was taken off on a Friday night for a long Memorial Day weekend. And uh, they had told the kids that they had to memorize this, and if they couldn't recite it on the bus, the buses weren't taken off. And I didn't think that applied to me. So I didn't memorize it. So the day came, we're on the bus, and uh, everybody, including me, had to recite it. And I was the only one on the bus that couldn't. 
So 45 minutes later, <laughs> we left for the Colorado River <laughs> with 1st John 4, uh, firmly tucked, verse 4, uh, in my little head. Ye are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you. And that's the Spirit of God who's in you than uh, he, and that would be Satan. And as, as you read through First John, the context would make that clear, than he who is in the world. Great, great truth that that we have the power of God within us, and the power of Satan at best is without us. Some, and can't get in us. Second uh, Corinthians one twenty two. Just as you can see, there just are innumerable passages. There's a lot more that talk implicitly about Satan. These are the ones who talk explicitly about Satan or what God has done. Second Corinthians uh, one verse twenty one and twenty two. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also seals us and gives us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And that is, again, the Spirit of God who uh, has sealed us to protect us and who is uh, within us as a pledge. Literally, the language is the Spirit of God is, is like an engagement ring to remind us. That's what an engagement ring is for, right? To remind the lady that the guy made some promises. And the Spirit of God is in us to remind us that uh, we will have a bridegroom waiting for us one day. That is, we who are a part of uh, the bride of Christ, the church, uh, in our redemption. James four seven to eight. This is a, just a, this is an often overlooked text, but it's it's wonderfully uh, uh, encouraging to us at the very end of the book of James. James. 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. That's step one. Step two, resist the devil. Result, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is, those who uh, have dirty hands, those who have... uh, impure hearts, and those who are not single-minded, uh, God will not draw near to. But God will draw near to those uh, who find that true of their life, having submitted to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just resist any thought that comes into your mind that is not uh, a thought that uh, honors and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. And we had seen that earlier today. Since then, the children share in in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. That is, Christ redeemed in his humanity and in his incarnation uh, those who were human, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You know what the greatest thing could happen to you and me in life? We die. You say, well, that's kind of morbid. I thought that guy was an optimist. Sounds like he's a full-blown, futuristic, premillennial pessimist, <laughs> which would be a contradiction in and of itself. No. Uh, Paul, 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Now, you're really good company, and I really appreciate you for a number of reasons, but you don't compare to Christ, (laughs) and neither do I. Uh, It's just keeping in mind that the perspective we have of this earth and being earthbound, and this is sort of all we know, is really not the reality that awaits us. Um, America the Beautiful, you know that song? I mean, there's purple mountains, majesty, and spacious skies, and amber waves of grain, and so on and so forth. And we all sort of, our, our American patriotism, the goosebumps, and maybe a little tear, and USA, USA, USA. This is a cursed earth. Did you ever think about that? I mean, what we're calling beautiful is the result of God cursing it. It's, it's the lesser part of the curse. So think what eternity is going to be like. Think what Eden would have been like without any sin whatsoever. There was no death, no deterioration, no nothing but perfection. And Eve made the wrong decision when there was no decision to be made and she should have just said, be gone. Well, that's another story, isn't it? Matthew 25, 41, and we'll sort of call time out at that point and look up and see we've got just time to talk about demons for a few minutes. Not my favorite subject, by the way. This is uh, in the Olivet Discourse in the book of Matthew, known as the Olivet Discourse because it was delivered from the Mount of Olives. Uh, It's after the Upper Room Discourse, and they've uh, left the city of Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley and the brook Kidron and up on the Mount of Olives, and it's at the very end of it. Then he will also say to those on his left, this is the sheep-goat nation judgment, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And uh, one day is coming, a judgment of all that is who is uh, unholy, uh, unrighteous, anti-God, in rebellion against the will of God. It it all will be uh, destroyed. It all will be uh, taken out of... uh, our experience, that we might experience the uh, greater glory, the greatest purity of God that is beyond our imagination. The the closest that it would come for us to imagine would either be reading Isaiah 6 or reading Revelation 4 and 5, two wonderful pictures of worship uh, in heaven uh, where it is uh, the purity uh, of purity. We won't read Revelation 21 to 10. You can read that on your own. But it is uh, the destruction of Satan and the great white throne judgment and the uh, end of the planet as it has been known from the time of Eve's deception and the time of Eve's uh, disobedience. Boy, we've, we've covered a lot of territory, haven't we? And we still have some more time to go. Boy, and we're supposed to have some more time to go. That's, that's a uh, 
a very good thing that we have some more time to go. Demons. And I think the rest of your notes, as a matter of fact, I don't think I know, the rest of your notes deal with uh, demons, and there's a lot of material there that I wasn't intending on covering anyway, so it's extra. But it's pages 10 to 23 in your notes. And what I want to do is just just take a few minutes to uh, deal with that. What I told you was was, uh, the most important question that you and I could answer. And I think the uh, question that is given the worst answer by a majority of uh, people in either books or media today as it relates to believers and demons, and that is, can a true believer, and, and I'm making an assumption with the word true, everybody understands there are professed believers who aren't true believers, I, I, do you teach that, man? You teach that, don't you? I thought so, or I wouldn't ask you the question. Uh, th- there are people who think they put their faith in Christ or attempted to put their faith in Christ. Somebody didn't explain fully to them who Christ was or didn't fully explain to them what the gospel was. And uh, you can tell by the life that they live thereafter is no different than the life that they lived before. Point being, it didn't make an ounce of difference. Uh, in their thinking or the way that they lived. So can a true believer have demons within with the need to uh, cast out, have an exorcism, uh, as it were? Uh, there's a few things about demons that are fairly important to understand before you answer that question, and i just give you a little survey. Um, Acts, or Matthew, rather, chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus dealt extensively with demons, more extensively than anybody in all of Scripture and more extensively than all of the people in Scripture in the old and the new put together. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 32, kind of an interesting portion of Scripture. It's on the uh, east side of the uh, Sea of Galilee, if you could picture that, if you've been there or seen pictures of it. And when he'd come to the other side, into the country of the uh, Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed, and and the Greek word there means demons were in them, met him as they were coming out of the tombs, and they were exceedingly violent, so much so that no one could pass by that road. And I'd have you note immediately that if a demon is in you, it's not a pleasure cruise. Um, It is a a very uh, raucous, very uh, violent, very anti-God, and any other negative thing that you might want to uh, say about that. And there was at a distance, or verse 29 rather, and behold they cried out saying, what do we have to do with you? Son of God. They're confronted by Christ. Have you come here to torment us before the time? And you know what time that is? That's the time in the end. They know there's a time coming when with Satan, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And we just read that in what chapter? This is an A, B, Charlie question, right? It was uh, John 12, Alpha, 
um, Luke 24, which there is no... <laughs> N, Charlie. Matthew 25. Where do you think we read it? Charlie. Charlie. Boy, you're a smart group. Yep, it was in that Olivet Discourse that Satan and his angels were going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's what they're talking about here. And now there was a distance from them, a herd of many swine feeding. They were on the side of uh, the Gentiles, obviously not on the side of the Jews, physically, uh, geographically. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone, just what he had said to Satan before. And they came out, went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished into the waters. How many of you have been to Israel? Did your uh, guide give you the uh, swine dive story? That's the, the Jewish guys just think that's the funniest deal in the world. There's a little, you come down the hill, and then there's a little precipice, and, and so they tell the swine dive. I don't think it's that funny, but they, they just howl over that particular story. But what's the whole point? Think of the, the evil energy that's involved in demons that not only made the men exceedingly violent, but uh, into the herd of pigs, and they went wild, lost their minds, and uh, into the Sea of Galilee, where they would have drowned. Uh, Demons are very violent. You, You can note that, number one. Number two, over in Acts 19, And this, I think, uh, is the funniest story in the entire Bible, in my judgment. And and you can disagree with my judgment. Acts chapter 19, it's in uh, Ephesus. Everybody there, I can still hear the pages going. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. Also, some of the Jewish exorcists, that is, uh, Jewish people who went around attempting to cast demons out of people, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. That was their little magical incantation. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Sort of uh, handed down their father was one of those, and so the sons became that. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? That should have been their first clue that big trouble was coming. Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued both of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's not the way a counseling session is supposed to conclude, folks. Not at all. So I would just carefully note, if you think you're going to get in the business of casting demons out, Uh, They were rather familiar with the name Jesus and the name Paul, but I doubt if they'll know who you are, and the consequences are severe if they don't. Just tuck that away. They're violent, very selective 
uh, in whom they uh, obey. I would note number three, having done that, that there is a severe penalty promised in the Word of God for those who add to the Word of God or who delete from the Word of God. And so before you develop a theology of why you ought to be an exorcist and uh, go around and lay hands on people and shout at them and jump up and down on them and cast out demons and say all sorts of uh, nasty things, uh, you ought to read uh, Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, Proverbs 35-6, and you probably know Revelation 22-18-19, all the way from uh, the Pentateuch at the beginning of the Old Testament to Revelation, the end of the New Testament, It says, uh, do not take away, do not add to, or it can be harmful to your spiritual health, big time. Don't do that. So don't invent ministries that the Word of God hasn't first authenticated. That that would be the point. And that would bring us to the question. And I'm just going to touch it. You've got an absolute full set of notes there. Uh, which I'm not going to lecture on, so you can relax about that. But just maybe hit hit the high points uh, in that. And I want to do it, number one, lexically, or with regard to the words that are used in the New Testament. And that's, you'll, you'll see why that's important. Secondly, uh, historically, in terms of instances in the Word of God, and asking the question, and, and this is the crux of the whole discussion, Is there any place in either the Old or the New Testament, anywhere in the Bible, where a true believer, without question, a true believer, had a demon within that needed to be cast out? Basically two conditions, true believer and a demon was in them. Is there anywhere in the Bible that has that? So we're going to look at that lexically, historically, and then theologically, and I told you the answer already this morning. Remember what it was? answer to the question is absolutely not, no, 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 under no circumstance, period. But um, what do I know But except what the Bible teaches? Um, so we need to find out what the Bible teaches, not what I teach. What I teach is immaterial. What the Bible teaches is absolutely everything. So let's go over a couple pages and... Uh, Roman numeral 2 is at the top, and it says assumptions. And just just so you know where I'm coming from, I believe in the historical reality and present operations of demons. So I'm I'm not saying demons were fiction in the Bible, and uh, they're not operative in the world today. I am saying they were real in the Bible, and they are operative today. Uh, I'm also saying that uh, it's reasonable to assume that demons operate today in similar fashion, maybe not identical, but certainly in similar fashion to what we see. I'm also believing that if demons like darkness, spiritual darkness, they've got to be more active in America than they used to be, because spiritually speaking, it's a darker nation. D is really important. Scripture alone, Scripture all by itself, Independent of your experience, my experience, or clinical data, only Scripture alone can determine the truth about demons. And then finally, living out our faith in Christ is a very real, actual, uh, day-by-day battle in spiritual dimensions with Satan and his army of demons. And the Word of God makes that abundantly clear. We spent the whole day talking about that. 
So that, that's not a surprise. So there's the question. Can Christians be um, demonized, is one way to put it. Indwelt spatially would be a description of that. With the need for demons to be cast out or expelled in much the same manner as we see in the Gospel and the book of Acts. And for just a minute, I'm going to get a little technical, and, and if you don't like that, turn me off for just about up two minutes and then come back into the discussion, but it's, uh, it's, it's important. There have been people in, in recent years, um, and I'd have, again, no reason to doubt their salvation. I would have reason to question their ability as a student of the Scripture, who have attempted to redefine some biblical words in terms of their experience in the 21st century, the 20th century, that would totally reinterpret the New Testament in terms of the words that are used there. So, number one, we need to just ask ourselves, what words are used in the New Testament where people were clearly indwelt by demons? Where we can, we can at least go from an example where we know what we're dealing with because the Bible uh, describes it. And I've listed the, the four terms or words that uh, are used in the New Testament. Uh, one, having a demon. And it's just it's simply the Greek word to have, to have a demon. Or second, one who is uh, demonized. And there's 16 uses of have a demon, 13 uses of one who's demonized. And then a couple of phrases, one's used twice, one's used once. But the vast majority... Uh, of people engaging demons in the New Testament are either described as having a demon or being demonized. And the question we need to ask, are those two different kinds of experiences, or do they talk about the same thing? And the answer is they talk about the same thing. It's two ways to describe the same experience. And the reason we know that is that in John chapter 10, in verse 20, it says, have a demon... And in John chapter 10, verse 21, in the same context, same story, uh, daemonizomai is used. And so they're equated. The same thing would be true in Luke 8.27 and Luke 8.36. It's the same story. And in one case it says, have a demon, the other daemonizomai. And so daemonizomai, or have a demon, means a demon within that needs to be cast out. You say, well, that's obvious. Why are you going to all this trouble and, and uh, boring us with lots of silly detail that we could care less about? Well, only because there are people who are trying to redefine words in the New Testament to draw a conclusion other than the one the New Testament would lead us to. Uh, on the next page, uh, you don't have to worry about all that stuff except to say, and, and you can take it by faith, I have checked the very best Greek lexical sources known to mankind throughout time as to what those words have meant through time. And all of them agree. And a lot of guys that do that kind of work uh, aren't believers. They don't believe the Bible's true, yet they study it for a lifetime because they think it's a worthy scholastic endeavor. But regardless of their theological persuasions, they agree that that's what these words all mean. It's a demon in with a need to be cast out. So you're with me so far? And, and, and that you've taken that by faith, and I appreciate that. Why would we go to uh, all of that work? 
you can see that I've, uh, letter C, uh, I've noted as an example a guy by the name of Ed Murphy, who wrote a book entitled The Handbook for Spiritual Warfare. It's about that thick, and you'd sort of think he's saying with the title, my book will tell you everything you need to know about spiritual warfare, and uh, you don't need to have any other books because this is The Handbook for Spiritual Warfare. And because of an experience that he had with his daughter, he's redefined daemonizomai that we saw biblically, talks about a demon within, to talk about demonic activity outside of a person. And the reason that he does that is he thought his daughter had a demon. But he couldn't bring himself to believe that his daughter was an unbeliever because she claimed to be a believer. And if, by definition, demons can't be in believers, that would make his daughter, what? An unbeliever. But he didn't want to believe that, so where's the demon got to be? The demon's got to be on the outside, not on the inside. And you'd have to read, I've, I very accurately quoted him in context and Merle Unger uh, in the pages that are there. But I'm here to tell you that all of those who disagree with the students of Greek literature, and particularly Greek words, have wanted to redefine that verb, daemonizomai, because of either experiences they've had in their family life or experiences they've had Uh, in clinical counseling. All of which is empirical. It's not divinely revealed, it's empirical. In the book, The Healing Promise, that the five of you got, because we ran out at that point, uh, I've devoted a whole chapter, and it's the material that's here, only in the book it's in prose, not not a bunch of uh, numbered and lettered paragraphs, that I think will uh, deal with that rather uh, extensively and let you see the kind of people that do that. Pentecostals and Charismatics are the worst at this. But there are non-Pentecostal and non-Charismatic people uh, who have come to these same conclusions. Maybe the most notable is uh, Fred Dickinson, who still teaches at Moody Bible Institute and is an excellent Bible student till it comes to here But he's very honest about what he does, and that is, um, he said, I know what the Scripture teaches, but I know what my experience has been, and therefore I'm going to take my experience and use it to interpret the Bible. And folks, when anybody says that, check out. The Bible always interprets our experience, because only the Bible is infallible. Our mind is still fallen and incapable of infallible judgment. So when in doubt, go with the Scripture. Don't go with the empirical data. Where did we learn that in the Bible early on? Eve, where's that? Genesis 3. That's one of the first major lessons you learn. Don't go with empirical data when it clashes with the truth of God's Word. So here's the question. Is there any place in the Bible where... It's incontestable, incontrovertible, absolutely crystal clear that a person who's a true believer 
has demons within them with a need to be cast out? That, that's the question. Those are the conditions. And I would be uh, more than willing to say if there's only one place in the Bible, because God only has to say it once, right, to make it true. If there's any place in the Bible where there is a true believer with a demon inside of them that needs to be cast out, I would be the first to say that's what the Bible teaches. But is, is there any? And, of course, there are folks who want to offer some. So I think it's important to look at them, don't you? Instead of just take their word by God's word I'll take by faith, not their word I'll take by faith. And so I've, I've listed so you can save you the trouble. It says Roman numeral 5 biblical database. You might have to turn a page in your notes to get there. We've looked at it lexically, looked at the words, and now we look at it historically. And there are four occasions in the Old Testament where people are dealing with demons. And I've listed them for you. There are nine occasions in the Gospels, and I've listed them for you. There's two occasions in the book of Acts, and I've listed them for you. And there are none in the epistles or the book of Revelation where we're dealing with a historical account of people with demons. Fifteen altogether. And I, I would just kind of believe if a true believer could have a demon in that needs to be cast out somewhere in there, we're going to find them. And those who would believe that say that there are. And they find them in two places. They find one on three occasions in the Old Testament with Saul, and on one occasion uh, in the New Testament with the woman who was bent double in Luke chapter 13. And I just want to look at them ever so briefly to help you with them. Saul in 1 Samuel uh, 6.14 to 23 and 18.10 and 19.9, it, it talks about Saul in combat with an evil spirit. Absolutely no mistake about it. And the question becomes, was Saul a real believer? I don't think we're going to know the answer to that till we get to heaven. That was the first theological question my daughter ever asked of me as a seminary student at what, honey, two and a half or three? Um, she's really bright, took after her mother, uh, just theologically astute. It, it's, I personally, if you, if you pushed me, I'd say, I think so. I can't prove it. But here, it's not the case. With Saul, the question is, were the demons on the inside or the outside? Remember, there's two conditions, true believer, demons on the inside. And the verbs that are used, on, upon, and on, would indicate that whatever he was wrestling with, and, and it's one of those uh, texts where five different Baptists can have five different interpretations of it, so it's, it's not like it's a slam dunk uh, in terms of who the evil spirit was. Was it a bad uh, emotional disposition? Was it a demon, et cetera, et cetera? Let's assume it was a demon, just for argument's sake, so we don't scoot out from under it. And the question I would ask, the verbs that are translated in 16, 18, and 19, on, upon, and on, um, do they talk about being on the uh, inside, or do they talk about being on the outside? And the answer is, the verbs that are used there always talk about being on the outside. And furthermore, there is a unique Hebrew verb 
that talks about a spirit entering a person from the outside to the inside. So they do have a verb that hits that, and it's not used here, but it's used of the Spirit of God entering Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2.2 and Ezekiel 3.24. And it's pretty significant because everything, whether, whether Saul was a believer or an unbeliever, the demons were on the outside. So that gets rid of three of the four possibilities of a true believer with a demon on the inside. But we still need to deal with Luke chapter 13. So let's turn to Luke chapter 13 for just a minute, and I'll try and make this quick and, and easy. But these are the kind of things you've got to do with, with naughty issues to make sure that you've uh, not just dismissed them because you don't agree with somebody or all the reasons that we would disagree with uh, people. Luke chapter 13, and it's, it's kind of a pathetic uh, in terms of the situation. Uh, sickness, verse 11 in Luke 13. There was a woman who with 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit uh, whom we can tell from verse 16 is related to Satan. Satan has bound this lady for 18 long years, it says in verse 16. So that tells us what the spirit is in verse 11. And was bent double and couldn't straighten up at all. Imagine that. Think about 18 years, you're bent over double, and you can't straighten up. I wouldn't think about it too long, because it's not a real pleasant thought, but just think about the dailies of life, trying to live through that, and, and the mercy and the compassion this dear lady needs. And Jesus came upon her, verse 12, saw her, called her over, and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness, and laid his hands upon her, And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And then verse 16, uh, the the answer and explanation of what went on. Satan has bound her for 18 long years, and he calls her a daughter of Abraham. And that's key in the argument, a daughter of Abraham. And those who say that Christians can have demons in them and cast out, use this lady as an example of someone in whom was a demon, which I would agree with. Whatever was causing her uh, doubling over and being bound was uh, internal. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. The question I'd ask, is she a true believer? And does the little phrase that uh, Jesus used of her Uh, In verse 16, daughter of Abraham, does that mean she was a true believer? And the answer that's given by those who want to use that uh, as an example is, uh, yeah, uh, she was. And they've got a proof text that they come to just a little bit later in Luke, uh, and it's in uh, chapter 19, and uh, it's in a context and story that you would know well. Remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man who went up the sycamore tree, you go to Israel and they'll take you right to the sycamore tree, which they preserved for 2,000 years and kept trim so it's the same size and everything. Um, isn't, it, isn't archaeology neat, just the way they... <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like all the guides in Israel tell all kinds of fairy tales. You just sort of have to listen carefully and use your head a little bit when you're over there. Um, but what they would do 
would be to uh, go to verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And here's how their reasoning would go. Salvation came to the house of the son of Abraham, and therefore he's a believer, and therefore she's a daughter of Abraham, and she's a believer. You got it? their logic figured out? Does that make sense or doesn't make sense? That's the logic not I'm using, but they're using. What they don't realize or what they won't tell you is that son of Abraham is used here in a different way that son of Abraham is used by Paul in Galatians 3. And they're grabbing on to son of Abraham as used by Paul in Galatians 3, which would refer to a believer, hearkening back to the Abrahamic covenant. But here, son of Abraham, and in terms of the lady daughter of Abraham, are used of the ethnic origin or the physical origin of the person. That is, they were Jewish. And if you're Jewish, it doesn't mean you're redeemed at all. And what was it that Zacchaeus needed? When Jesus came to him, he was what? Remember he was a tax collector? And he had defrauded all kinds of people and charged exorbitant fees, etc., etc., etc. And he was not a believer. But what Jesus is saying, the Son of Man has come to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21, that as a Jew... He was in need of salvation, but if you're in need of salvation, you know what that means? You don't have salvation. And the term son of Abraham doesn't mean you have salvation any more than it meant it for the lady over in Luke 13. Consequently, and with this conclusion, uh, what's a rather pedantic discussion, I'll try and wrap up. And that is, uh, while the demons were inside of her, she wasn't a true believer. And if she wasn't a true believer, I've got absolutely no question that she could have demons inside of her with the need to cast her out. And therefore, consequently, I would conclude, based on just the brief time we've spent looking at all of that, that there is no text, clear-cut text, anywhere in the Bible, old or new, where someone who is a true believer has a demon inside that needs to be cast out. Uh, There are Lots of places, starting with the Apostle Paul, where a true believer is waging some sort of battle with demons on the outside, but not on the inside. Therefore, exorcisms are not for Christians. And you say, well, what do you do if a Christian comes and and, and there's a demon in them and they're saying all kinds of awful things? Doesn't that sort of contradict what you're saying? Not at all. Because you made a bad assumption. You made an assumption they were a Christian. The Bible would say if a demon's in them and saying all sorts of lousy things, what? They're not a believer. And what do you do with unbelievers, demon or no demon? You give them the gospel. And why do you give them the gospel? Because it is the power of God. And that doesn't guarantee a good outcome to the encounter. It just means that you put forth the only thing that has a remote chance of moving that person from death and darkness into life and to light. And I, I think for the sake of time, and it's been a long day for you guys, um, I'll let you read the rest of the notes, which answers uh, a lot of, of other questions, like ministry of deliverance. How would you like to have a deliverance ministry? Van, would you like to have a deliverance ministry? Not that kind 
I, he's already got one here. Do, do you know what the New Testament deliverance means in the New Testament? Salvation. So your evangelism program is the New Testament version of deliverance. I, I hope that's helpful for, uh, for people to understand. And you can read in the notes where uh, uh, I deal with that. Paul says in Colossians that we've been delivered, there's our word, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. So if you want a deliverance ministry, have one. Just share the gospel with people. Forget about the demons and let God worry about the demons. Well, there are a lot of other issues that we're dealing with. Binding Satan, territorial demons, warfare praying, prayer of authority, generational sins, invading Satan territory, power power encounters, all of which are non-biblical, unbiblical expressions and experiences that are ginned up basically to make a handful of people, either pastors or TV hosts, look like they're super spiritual, to separate you from your money, because people want to give money to powerful influences, um, and are over in the corner expending all this energy, bragging all the time, accomplishing nothing for the kingdom of God, and Satan's roaming over here just absolutely scot-free with nobody in the way doing whatever he wants to do. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do, just to freely do what he does and have Christians over here think that they're conquering uh, the the God of this world and uh, the ruler of the demons. So I'm going to let you read uh, what is left there, and I think you can kind of work through that uh, biblically, and we'll draw some good conclusions. Okay, it's five after three, so I need to uh, uh, see if you learned anything today. No, I'm not ready yet, man. You can go sit down. You can go sit down. Now I got one more question. It, it's a quick one, and it has a purpose. Since I went five minutes over and the pastor's trying to get me off the stage hurriedly and I won't let him, will you forgive me? And if you won't, you've just subjected yourself to the schemes of Satan. If you will, if you will, then I'm encouraged that you've learned and uh, say thank you for having